You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Amen and good morning. Happy Father's Day to you. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we continue in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been saying that the Sermon on the Mount is really uh, Jesus' greatest teaching, showing us a new way to be human. He's showing us what it means to live a life where we can experience uh, wholeness and happiness, where we can experience the fullness and satisfaction that we long for. And uh, today, as we continue the series, we'll be in Matthew 6, verses 5 through verse 13. I want to say uh, real quick, um, if you are visiting for the first time today, welcome, or if you're uh, joining us for the first time online, welcome. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here, and on behalf of the pastors and members, we're so glad that that you joined us. If you want more information about us as a church or how to connect, there's a connect card in the back of the seat that's in front of you. You can fill that information there, place in that offering box in the back. Um, or if you're online, wherever you may uh, be, we're going to drop a connect link for you right now. You can click on that and uh, you can fill out some information and that'll just be a way of us to know how we can uh, love you and serve you to the best of our ability. So that said, Matthew 6 is where we're going to be. And I just want to say this, I know that Father's Day um, is meant to be a day of celebration, but I recognize um, that this is actually a really difficult day for some people. Um, for some of you, maybe you had a great father, but your dad has passed away. Um, for others, uh, maybe um, you grieve today over the father you never had, you wish you had, but have never had. Maybe for some of you had a father who uh, was absent, or maybe he was physically present, but he wasn't really present. Does that make sense? Maybe for some of you had a father who was abusive, or, um, I mean, there's a whole list of reasons why I think there are people today on Father's Day that, that really grieve. And I just want you to know if that is where you are, that as a pastor, um, I grieve alongside you. Um, your grief is real. Uh, you should grieve uh, over the fact that maybe your father was not as he should be, or maybe if you had a good father, he's passed on. And so we grieve with you. But what I hope you see today, uh, I really want to encourage you to listen, because um, if that's where you are, I really believe God has a specific word for you today, a word of hope and healing, really for all of us, but especially those of us who have had imperfect fathers. And so um, with that in mind, uh, Matthew 5, we're going to start, or Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 13. Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. If you remember from last week, we said Jesus, um, he told, whenever he uses the word hypocrite, the word he uses here literally means to be an actor on stage. And so what Jesus is getting at here is when you pray, don't pray for show. Okay? Um, he says, if you do that, your reward is going to be in full. Um, verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is not saying here that when you pray literally, you need to go into a closet. It's not a bad thing. That might be helpful for you. Uh, but we know Jesus is not saying that because there are times where Jesus prayed in front of other people. I think about the Garden of Gethsemane, where he invited his disciples to pray with them. Also throughout the book of Acts, which is really the only place we really see a good example of what it means to be the church. The church came together often and would pray together in a public top setting. So Jesus, again, is not 
saying here that when you pray, you should only be alone. He's just saying, don't pray for show. He goes on to verse 7 and says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. So Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray for show, and don't like keep on going on and on and on. Like You're not going to like twist God's arm if you use a bunch of big fancy words, right? Just keep it simple. Verse 8 says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then, verse 9, is how you should pray. We'll put this on the screen for you. And I want to encourage you to pray this, to say this out loud with me. Verse 9, it says, this is how you should pray. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let me pray for us one more time and then we'll dive into this. Father, I thank you so much for another opportunity for us to come together uh, in your presence to sing songs about who you are and what you have done for us and, and now to sit under the teaching of your word. We recognize today that the words that you have given us are, are not just here so that our minds uh, can be transformed. That's a piece of it, but you want to transform our entire being. You want us to experience more of the life that you have for us. And so I pray that will happen today. And Holy Spirit, you will take this word and drive it deep into our hearts for our good and your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start by um, reading to you a story that has radically changed the way I view prayer. Um, This is actually from the book Abba's Child from Brennan Manning. And here's what he says. Once a woman asked me to pray for her father who was dying of cancer. When I arrived, I found the man lying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows and an empty chair beside his bed. I assumed the old fellow had been informed of my visit. I guess you were expecting me, I said. No, who are you? I'm the new associate at your parish, I replied. When I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew I was going to show up. Oh yeah, the chair, the bedridden man said. Would you mind closing the door? Puzzled, I shut the door. I've never told anyone this, not even my daughter, said the man, but all of my life I've never known how to pray. At the Sunday Mass, I used to hear the pastor talk about prayer, but it always went right over my head. I eventually abandoned any attempt to pray. Until one day, about four years ago, my best friend said to me, Joe, prayer is just a simple matter of having a conversation with God. Here's what I suggest. Sit down on a chair Place an empty chair in front of you and in faith, see God on the chair. It's not spooky because he's already promised, I will be with you all of your days. Then just speak to him and listen to him the same way that you're listening to me right now. So Padre, I tried it. And I liked it so much that I did it a couple hours every day. I'm careful though because if my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, she'd either have a nervous breakdown or send me to the funny farm. I was deeply moved by the story, and I encouraged the old guy to continue on the journey. Then I prayed with him, anointed him with oil, and returned to my church office. Two nights later, his daughter called to tell me that her daddy had died that afternoon. Did he seem to die in peace, I asked. Yes. When I got back from the store, I found him dead. But there was something strange, in fact, beyond strange, kind of weird. Apparently, just before daddy died... 
he leaned over and he rested his head on the chair beside his bed. As we think about prayer, I hope that's the goal for us. Now we get to this place where prayer for us is where we want to lay our dying head as we are growing in intimacy with God. The question is this morning, with that story as the backdrop, is how do we get there? How do we get from prayer being just kind of this mental exercise? It's like, oh yeah, every Christian should pray. Here's another sermon on prayer. How do we get from there to this place like this old man where we have this personal, intimate, tangible relationship with God, which as a result leads to this powerful life of prayer? It's a very important question for us to ponder today because from my experience, whether you've been a Christian for years or you just started following Jesus, prayer can sometimes feel kind of awkward, can it? That's why we don't want to do it around other people. It can feel forced. It can feel wooden and blocky. And, and, and we hear all the time, especially from pastors, that prayer is meant to be the air that we breathe. But if we can be honest, oftentimes prayer feels more like carrying a burden than it does catching our breath. I would say especially in a culture like ours, an overly busy, distracted culture where there are kids to care for, bills to pay, text messages to return, errands to run. Uh, and oh yeah, there's also this amazing show on Netflix that you have to watch. And then you take all of that and you mix it into the secular environment where you're told that basically if it's not logical, that if you can't measure it, if you can't see it, then it must not be true. And you take all that together, and there's no wonder then why for many of us prayer is difficult. It's no wonder why when it comes to prayer for many of us, we, we basically have, have reduced it down to a shopping list that we hand to God here and there or whenever we get desperate. And if that is where you are this morning, I want you to know you're actually in the norm with the church. But though this is a normative place to be, what I want you to notice again in the context of Jesus' sermon that is all about how to flourish, he says, if you want to flourish, if you want to thrive, this is something you have to get down. You have to learn how to cultivate a life of prayer. And if you look back with me at verse 9, the number one thing that Jesus says we have to get today, the number one thing that, that, that you ha- if you are going to cultivate a life of prayer, this is the thing you have to get And what is it? Jesus says it is the reality in verse 9 that God is our Father. Now, to you and me, let's be honest. How many of you, when you heard that, you were like, ooh, that's huge. Right? Most of us, we hear that because we've heard it so much. It's like, okay, next point. Move on to something I already know. And if that is where you are, you yet, you are yet to realize just how important this is. To a first century Jew, to hear Jesus say that you can call God your father would have been a radical idea because to a first century Jew, they had many names for uh, for God, but father was not one of them. They would have referred to God maybe as sovereign king or creator of the universe or something like that, but they would have never dreamed to call God their father. But then Jesus walks on the scene and he says, actually, when you talk to God, I want you to know that more than he wants you to call him anything else, he wants you to call him Father. I want to ask you today, when you pray and you start your prayers, how do you address God? He wants you to call him Father. You know, I've been thinking about my own life. I carry several titles. Um, I'm a husband. To Megan, I'm a chaplain for two hours a week at Allen Engineering. I'm a pastor to many of you. I'm a friend to some. I carry a lot of different titles. But of all the titles I carry, the one thing I want my kids to call me is what? Dad. 
I don't want them to call me Pastor Jared or Brother Jared or Chaplain Jared. Or I want them to call me Dad. Why? Because I'm the only dad they have. And they're the only kids I have. It's a very special relationship. And what Jesus says today, you've got to get this. The same is true with the God of the universe. The one who created the world, who spoke the world into existence and holds it all together, he's your dad. And therefore, when you come to him, he wants you to come to him as daddy, as father. Paul says it like this, and I know we have a lot of fans of the Apostle Paul in here. And so let me just read from him. He says in chapter 8, verse 14, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And and Logan, thank you for explaining to us what sonship means earlier in our service. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Do you realize what Paul is saying here? He says that one way you know that you are a Christian, please hear this today. According to the scripture, one way you know you're a Christian is not that you prayed a prayer when you were at church camp, but the way you know you're a Christian is you receive the spirit of God. And how do you know if you've received the spirit of God? Because the spirit testifies that you are a child of God. The Spirit testifies. He moves you from the faith of a slave to the faith of a son. He moves you from this place of fear to a place of freedom. That, man, I know that the God of the universe loves me. And that I'm his child. Like, that's what the Holy Spirit does whenever you receive him. And some of you, today what that means for you is you need to receive the Holy Spirit. Because you don't feel that. You feel that, that Christianity is the right thing. You feel that going to heaven is better than going to hell, but you do not feel the love of God as your father. And what you need is not not just for some preacher to get up here and yell and yell and yell and yell and eventually you're like, okay, I get it. You need the Holy Spirit to come and dwell with inside of you. And this is what the Apostle Paul says here. The Spirit testifies and God is our father. We are his children. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 1. Another heavy hidden chapter. If you want to memorize a chapter in the Bible, this is a great one. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, he says, For God chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Listen to this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. There's so many more verses that I can read, but listen, you've got to get this today. The Bible is clear that all of us at one time were orphans. The Bible is clear that spiritually speaking, all of us at one time were were alone and without hope. But then according to the gospel, God, because he's rich in mercy, because he's gracious and he's kind, he came to where you are and with a big smile on his face says, I choose today to adopt you. That's the gospel. From this day forward, you are mine, I am yours, you now have my last name, everything I have, you will inherit. When you screw up, I will forgive you. When you turn from me, I will pursue you. When you're overwhelmed, I will help you. When you want to talk, I will listen to you. I will never harm you. I will never hurt you. I will never leave you. I will love you for always and forever with an unconditional and unstoppable love. Amen? This is who God is, but for many of us, this is where the problem comes in. Because for many of us, 
all of us actually, we have had imperfect fathers. And because we have had imperfect fathers, you know what that means? We have all, whether intentionally or unintentionally, been wounded by our dads. And therefore, because of that, without even realizing it, our struggle to relate with God as Father comes in when we tend to project our distorted earthly fathers onto the heavenly Father. So maybe for some of you, you grew up with an earthly father who was abusive, physically or verbally. Maybe for some of you, you had a father who was a performance junkie. He clearly cared more about what you do than who you are. You come home with four A's and a B. Why did you make a B? You go two for four in your baseball game instead of great job on those two hits. Why didn't you hit those other two? I mean, nothing was ever good enough. Maybe your dad had a hair trigger temper. You didn't ever know where you stood. Maybe he was a drunk. Maybe he was always shaming you. Maybe he was emotionally distant. He was physically there, but he was not emotionally there. He was like a hologram. Maybe for some of you, your dads were not faithful to your mom or or to you. And therefore, because of these wounds you have received from your earthly father, you are projecting that on your heavenly father. And therefore, to think as God as your father makes prayer not easier, but more difficult for you. And this is why in the words of John Tyson, he says, unless we break the stronghold of the false images of God, unless you start, stop projecting your earthly father onto your heavenly father then we will never, he says, be drawn to prayer. This is why Jesus says, if you want to have a powerful and intimate prayer life, before you ever get the how. Hey, Jerry, just tell me, how do I pray, man? Just come on, dude, keep it logical. Before we ever get the how, he says, you got to understand the who. Because if you don't understand the who, the how is never going to matter. I could give you the most brilliant sermon on how to to pray in the entire world. But if you don't get this, he says, it ain't going to matter. You ain't going to pray. You know, I was, uh, I, I'm in the middle of a counseling session or several sessions with a man in our church right now. And, um, he came in a few weeks ago because he said that he is struggling immensely with, with anxiety, some melancholy, depression, a very successful man, but yet he, on the inside, it looks good on the outside, on the inside, he's really struggling. He's just carrying a lot of stress. And so we did begin to dive into his story and it became very evident to me that he resents his father. He resents him. And so I, I didn't shame him for that. I just said, like, why do you resent your, why do you hate your dad? And he thought about it and he said, you know, because he took my joy from me. Like he robbed me of life. He robbed me of peace. And I said to him, I said, what kind of dad do you wish you would have had? What kind of father do you wish you would have had? And he said, well, I wish I would have had a father who was present. I wish I would have had a father who knew how to express love to me. I wish I would have had a father who spent time with me. I wish I'd have had a father who was a teacher who actually taught me like life skills, like how to survive, how to flourish in this life. He said, I wish I would have had a father who was a loving husband. I wish I would have saw a dad who loved my mom well. I wish I would have had a father who was a friend. And the older I got, the more intimacy our friendship grew. And I said to this man, I said, you know what you're longing for? Everything you're longing for is found in your heavenly father. And, and I just began to work through the line. I said, is your heavenly father present? He says, oh yeah, man, through the Holy Spirit, he's present. Your heavenly father ever expressed love to you? He's like, yeah, through Jesus Christ. He gave his own son for me. Did he spend time with you? Yeah. Is he a teacher? Like, yeah, he's given me his whole Bible to learn how to live this life. 
I said, is God a loving husband? And he said, yeah, we begin to work through the book of Hosea and Ephesians where it says that God is a husband, that we are like his bride. And every time that we sin, we cheat on him. But he continues to love us and pursue us. I said, is God your friend? We begin to look at the New Testament where Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friend. I told this man, I said, dude, the reason I think you're experiencing so much anxiety, the reason I think you feel God is so distant is because you think you're still living in your earthly father's house and you're not. You're in your father's house. This is his world. And according to Psalm 16, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I said, you need to go and you need to memorize that verse this week, chew on that verse. And so he did. And on, I guess it was Wednesday of this past week, he said, man, I, I have had so much peace in my life as I've been meditating on who my heavenly father actually is. He's replaced the distorted images with the true image. And Jesus says, this is why we have to start here because when it comes to prayer, if you focus on the how to pray, You'll never get it unless you understand who you are praying to. And who are you praying to? You're praying to the God of the universe who just so happens to be a perfect father. Unlike many of our fathers, he is patient. He is generous. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is abounding and steadfast love. And by the way, if you notice, if you look back in chapter 6, verse 9, he says he's not just your father. He is your father in heaven. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he's way up there in the clouds beyond you. Jesus, when he came to the earth, he brought heaven with him. The kingdom of God was ushered in. And therefore, what that means is whenever Jesus says, pray to your father in heaven, he is reminding you today that God is as near to you right now as the air on your skin. He's as near to you right now as the breath that is in your lungs. And so if you grew up with a dad who was distant physically or emotionally, he checked out. According to Jesus, God the father is not like that. He is always near, always present. I just want to ask you today, do you believe that? I, I know, I know you're ready for me. Some of you are ready to move on to the next point because you get it up here. Do you get that? Do you feel that? The greatest fear that we have as children is to be abandoned and rejected. That's why we cry when a parent says no. It's not because, I mean, yeah, we're selfish, but that's not the main reason we're crying. We feel like we're going to be cut off. We feel like we're going to be rejected. We're going to be abandoned. That's why two questions that every one of us are asking is, do I matter and are you going to leave me? If you really knew me, are you going to leave or are you going to stay with me through thick and thin? And according to Jesus, God the Father will never leave you. He will never turn his back on you. He will never get tired of you. He is with you. He is for you. And nothing you can do can change that reality. This is the first thing Jesus says you have to get. Before you focus on the how, you've got to focus on the who. When you pray, he says, know who you're talking to. It is your heavenly Father. And then secondly, because that is true, the next thing he says is this, is that the primary goal of prayer, and we have to get this today, the primary goal of prayer is joyful, grateful, worshipful enjoyment of the Father's company. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, hallowed be your name. Now, I'm guessing for most of you, hallowed is not a word that you use throughout the week. Anybody use that this week? Anybody? None of us, right? None of us were like, hey, babe, hallowed be your name, girl. Right? Like It's like none of us are talking that way. So what does Jesus mean when he says, hallowed be your name? Well, to put it quite simply, without going into all the Greek and all of that, to hallow God's name means to set God apart. It means to treat him as sacred, as ultimate, as better than anyone or anything else in all of creation. And therefore, to hallow God's name, listen to this, guys, is to recognize the main point of prayer. Please hear me today. The main point of prayer is not to go to God to get things from God. It's to go to God to get God. 
The main point of prayer is not to treat God as a celestial vending machine, and prayer is the coin you put into the machine to get goodies to come out. Like the whole point of prayer is not you going to God and saying, maybe you can give me something to make me happy. No, prayer first and foremost is realizing God alone can make me happy. And listen, there's nothing wrong with asking God for things. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the greatest thing about prayer is when you pray, you tap into the presence of the supreme being of the universe. You tap into the one who is more beautiful and glorious and loving and life-giving than anyone or anything else in all of creation. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, when you pray before you give God your shopping list and run through your needs, you hallow God's name. Tim Keller says it like this. To hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy toward God and even more a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way that we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things as in how successful we are in our social networks. We therefore pray mainly when our career or our finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasure seems safe, it does not occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, listen to this, he has not yet become our happiness. You know, the reality is, whether you realize it or not, we all hallow someone or something. You are a worshiper. Even atheists are worshipers. We are natural born worshipers, which means we all look to someone or something for the ultimate source of joy and happiness. And so I just want to ask you this morning, what is that for you? What is it right now in your life that if we were looked at how do you spend your time and your money, what are you hallowing? Think about that today. If I was to look at your time and your money, what are you howling? What do you adore the most? Is it success, performance, approval, winning, comfort, money, kids? Listen, none of that is bad, but please hear me today. If you turn good things into ultimate things, it will at best disappoint you and at worst drive you into the ground. If your kids, our kids are gifts from God. They may not feel like it at times, but they are. Children are a gift from the Lord. But when you try to turn a gift into your God, I'm telling you, your kids will then ruin your life or you'll ruin theirs because either they will constantly be disappointed you and never living up to your expectations or you will crush them with the expectations you've set for them. They can't hold the worship. Only God can. Same is true with your parents or your spouse. If you look to your spouse or your parents as the ultimate source of your joy, if they become your God, what are you going to do someday when you have to bury your God? What are you going to have to do? Your joy, your joy will be buried with him. And listen, because Jesus knows this is true, because he knows there is nothing outside of God that can sustain us. He says, if you want to be happy, you want to be whole, you need to hallow God's name. You need to say right now to God, God, help me to see you as holy. Help me to see you as pure. Help me to see you as true. Help me to see you as unique. Help me to see you as beautiful. When we go to prayer, we go to him and we say, God, I realize that there is nothing in the world. I can have everything in the world. And yet if I don't have you, I have nothing. And therefore, God, I want to start by just soaking up your presence. Now, once you get that, Once you focus your heart on who you're talking to, Jesus goes on next in verse 10 and he says this. 
Because prayers make a difference, he says, when you pray, pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. Now, we don't often think this way. But according to Jesus and throughout the New Testament, the main way, not the only way, but the main way we get to see God's kingdom come is not ultimately through hardworking church members. It's not through smooth-talking preachers or better music or better and newer programs. But rather, according to Jesus and the scriptures, if we are going to see God's kingdom come, it is going to happen the main way. Mainly, it's going to happen through prayer. And this is one of the reasons we launched an eight-week prayer course. And I would encourage you, I know we're like in the middle of that right now, and it's like that's the time where it's like, okay, like there's glitches in the screen and all that. It's like so easy to want to just like bow and get out of that. Like please make prayer an investment. Like make a prayer investment in your life. As Pete Gregg says, history is shaped by people on the bended knee. I just want to ask you today, like do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer changes things? And if you're like, I'm not really sure if I believe that or not, we'll just do this exercise with me for a minute. Think about the last seven days in your life and ask yourself, if all of your prayers were answered, how would our world be different? Some of you may be like, I'd had a better parking spot. I would have got a promotion. I would have had a more comfortable lifestyle. But I just want to ask you today, like by how you've prayed over the last seven days, how much would we have seen God's kingdom come and will be done right here in Northeast Arkansas as it is in heaven as a result of your prayers? You know, uh, from my experience, most of us in the church have a very hard time praying kingdom-minded prayers. And I think a big reason for that is because a lot of us tend to err towards fatalism. Which just means that we've come to a place where we're like, God's sovereign. He's just going to do what he's going to do. And it doesn't matter what I do. He's just going to do his thing. Everything's predetermined, already set. So there's no reason to pray. No reason to ask God for any of these kind of things. But then you come to the Lord's Prayer and Jesus himself, who is the radiance of God's glory, the image of the invisible God, he says, actually, you need to pray for God's kingdom come and his will to be done because when you pray, things change. Things happen. Dallas Lord says it like this. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he's answering our prayer when he is only doing what he is going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is like a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible replacing it with a dead ritual at best. Guys, I'll tell you right now, if there's anything in your life that is making your prayer a dead ritual, you might want to get it out. It's not of God. If you have something, if you have some belief that's keeping you from praying, that's made prayer a dead ritual in your life. The truth is, when you pray, God uses your prayers to change humanity, to change the world. And I could share story after story after story of how this has happened in our church but Adam and I have come up with a, a, a new plan is we're no longer going to share stories with you that are more than a week old because we believe God does stuff all the time. And so I'll just share a story from just this past week of how prayer changes things. My wife recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, she was really impressed by the Lord to pray for a woman who's been walking by our house. And so um, she didn't know why, but she began to believe that maybe this woman's name was Mary. 
And so she just began to pray to God, like, God, I would, I pray that for Mary, that you would bless her, that you would provide for her. Didn't really have any other specifics behind that, but just kept praying. On Thursday, this lady walks by our house again, and my wife said, I'm going to go let her, her know I've been praying for her. And my wife goes up to her. I'm there. My kids are there. So it's a really beautiful moment. She goes up to this woman, and she says, hi, my name's Megan. What's your name? She says, my name's Mary. And Megan's like, oh, kind of looks at me now. I'm like, all right. And she said, well, I just want to let you know that I've been praying for you. God's impressed on my heart. I don't know what it is, but I just feel like that you need a prayer. And I was just praying that God would provide and bless. And she goes, oh, honey, I'm so glad that you did because, you know, thanks to COVID-19, I'm a nurse and I lost my job. And I've been trying to apply everywhere and nothing had come available. But just yesterday, I got two job offers. And now I'm trying to decide which one am I going to take. And she said, I want to thank you for your prayers. I think God answered that. And also, it means so much to me because it lets me know that God sees me and he loves me. That he hadn't lost sight of me. Now, some of you logical thinkers, you're like, that's just a coincidence. Maybe, but here's what I know. I never had any coincidences like that in my life until we started praying that way. You won't ever have those coincidences if you don't pray and ask for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in the lives of his people. And so here's the truth, and I don't get all this, but our prayers, I really do believe, bend reality towards his holy purposes. Praying for a woman which results in her saying, I know that God loves me and sees me and it stirs my heart towards him. Is that what God wants? Seems like it to me. Seems like it to me. It seems exactly what the church is meant to do, in fact. I don't understand how that is, by the way. It just is. It just is. Therefore, when we pray, we need to come to God with a holy tremor and a healthy expectation that he will use our prayers to accomplish his mission. So just to recap, I'm going to say these last three points, or I'm going to show these, these last three points, and we'll move very quickly through the rest of the message. But here's the first three things Jesus says with us. One, when it comes to prayer, realize that God is our Father. Secondly, realize when it comes to prayer, the primary purpose of prayer is joyful, grateful, worshipful enjoyment of the Father's company. And third, you need to know that when you pray, that prayer changes things. And then whenever you finally get that, Jesus says this. He goes on to verse 11 through 13. Let's read it. And then we'll be done. He says, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Richard Foster says this, at the very heart of the universe is God's desire to give and forgive. Because God is a loving father who absolutely wants to give good gifts to his children, there is a time and place to ask him, not just for your needs, but also for your wants. There are times to pray these big kingdom-minded prayers, and there are times, Jesus says, where you can even ask him for something as small as your daily bread. And so there are times where you can ask God for something as big as, God, please bless us with a child, or you can pray for something as small as, God, please bless us with a babysitter to watch our child. There are times where you can pray things like, like, God, I want you to save my lost neighbor. And times you can say, God, I want you to help give me the patience to tolerate my lost neighbor's dog that is barking all through the night. There are times where you can pray for something as big as a cure for the coronavirus or times you can pray for something as small as a canker sore. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is saying there's nothing too big or too small that you can pray for. God is a good father who loves to give good gifts. And I just want to say this too, by the way. He's a good father who loves to give good gifts even when he says no. You realize that? There are times I tell my kids no, and it's not because I'm a celestial killjoy. It's because I don't think they should have ice cream every single night. Some of you haven't got that yet. Like You're like, what's wrong with that? Every single night, you know? Sometimes God will tell you no, but even when he tells you no, it's him loving you. It's him leading you into life. He loves to give. And then he goes on and he says, Jesus says, because God only loves to give but forgive, you can go to him with all of your sins. 
please hear me today. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can be forgiven. It does not matter how big of a debt you've accrued against this God because God is rich in mercy and gracious. He yearns to forgive you of your sins. And not only that, but verse 13, he goes on and says, not only can you be forgiven of your sin, but you can also be freed from the power of sin. This is what Jesus means when he says, when you pray, pray, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, the reality is whenever you choose to follow Jesus, please hear me today and we're about done. And I appreciate your, your attention. When we pray or when we choose to follow Jesus and the way he's called us to follow him, we are choosing to live within an upside down kingdom and you can therefore expect opposition. You can expect attack. Whether it comes from your sinful flesh that is bent in on self or the cultural current that is pushing against this way of Jesus or this real enemy that Jesus calls the devil, when you choose to align with the kingdom of God, you can expect a fight. You can expect a struggle. And therefore, because Jesus knows that we are helpless in this fight apart from him, he says, when you pray, pray, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, so that rather than being overcome, you can overcome. So that rather than experiencing death, you can experience life. And so with that said, we close today and we end where we begin. And it is around this reality that Jesus Christ wants you to flourish. He wants you to thrive. I think of that passage in John 10, 10, where Jesus says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. Guys, do you realize the Sermon on the Mount is not primarily about rules to be followed. It is about a joy to be found. And according to Jesus, that joy is found in a life that is in close communion with your heavenly Father. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so with that in mind, as we end today, my hope is that on this Father's Day, that yeah, you'll spend time if you have your father around. and yeah, That'd be great if you could spend time with your father. But more than that, I pray that you cultivate a life with your heavenly Father. That prayer for you will go from being this religious duty to this relational delight as you press deeper and deeper into his presence. In order for that to happen for some of you, I suspect in a room this size, um, some of you are really going to need to take seriously your past relationship with your earthly father. And you're going to need to learn to grieve that. And you're going to need some help around that, whether it's meeting with Adam or another pastor or someone in your DNA, your parent. You're going to need to process this stuff in order to move you from a place that's still projecting on your heavenly father, your earthly father. I also suspect in a room this size with this many people and those watching online that some of you actually need to become a child of God. One of the things that burdens me the most and the hardest thing about being a pastor is fighting against cultural Christianity where people think that they're good to go because they're moral people who love the Bible. Nowhere will you see that you go to heaven because you're a moral person who loves the Bible. Some of you today, you're an orphan. And you didn't know that, that the good news is today, you don't have to work into your Heavenly Father's lap. You don't have to earn His favor, His love. You don't have to perform to impress Him. You don't have to walk on eggshells thinking, man, I guess I better get it right today because if I don't, He's kicking me out of the family. 
You need to know the whole reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth was through his life, death, and resurrection to bring you into the family of God. You ever thought about how powerful it is that Jesus, when he's on the cross, all through his life, he calls God his father, but he goes to the cross, and while he's on the cross, and he's hanging and he's dying for you and me, instead of saying, my father, my father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You realize on the cross, because Jesus became your sin, he was cast out of the family of God. He had been in the family of God from eternity past. All he had known is the love of the Father. But he was cast out of the family of God at the cross so that you could be brought into the family of God. So that you could know God as Father. He then rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. And he gave you the Holy Spirit so that right now, if you will receive the Holy Spirit, you will begin to feel, maybe for the first time for some of you, that God really, really, truly loves me. He's crazy about me. And he's never going anywhere. If you have never given your life to Jesus... If you have never trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ on your behalf, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to, to, to answer all your questions. You don't have to solve anything. You don't have to try hard to be better. You just need to come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith and ask for him to save you. And he will. And he'll give you his Holy Spirit. And that said, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And if you will, let's stand together. And... I'm going to pray over us. We'll sing another song together and then we'll be dismissed. But before we shuffle around too much, I just want to encourage you right now just to, to, to avoid James's warning or to pay attention to James's warning that, that he says that we are so quick to be hearers of the word, not doers of the word. I just want you to encourage you right now to ask yourself, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me here? Rather than thinking about, do I agree with this? Do I agree with that? Can I solve this in my mind? Can I solve that? Blah, blah, blah. What about my neighbor? What about my spouse? What about my friend? What about this church? What am I going to eat? Holy Spirit, what do you have for me in this? A.W. Tozer says that what grieves the heart of God most are our harsh thoughts towards him. Father, I pray that right now for everyone who is here in the room and those who are watching online, would you please, Holy Spirit, arrest their attention and their heart. Would you open their mind's eye to see you as you really are. I pray for those who are here that have father wounds that run deep, that maybe have, have gone toxic in their, in their soul and their mind that have caused them to project on you a false image that have kept them from experiencing intimacy with you. God, that you would help them to see just how much you love them. They would feel your compassion and your grace and mercy. And I pray if there's anybody here who are watching online who does not have a personal relationship with you, that, that would change today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray and ask these things. 